My big aim right now is to correct the field of entrepreneurship and, and put them on the right track again. I think we have basically everything to uh, be grateful to entrepreneurs for everything that we have and everything that we will have, because uh, without them, we would at best just repeat what we're doing. Um, but I think we would probably lose a lot along the way. And then based off of that, to sort of add a markup to cover their profits, and then that will be the price, and then they go to the market and try to sell it. This is a, a, a great way of failing. If, if that's your goal, then that's how you should do it. The reason we don't see falling prices is because we are, or the central banks, are creating a lot of money all the time so that there's more money than goods and then that affects the price. And it's more than the official inflation rate. Hey, Par, how are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you. What do professors do in the summer? Well, uh, most people would probably guess that we don't do anything at all and that we just hang out and um, enjoy time off. But uh, if you're in a research university anyway, uh, you're probably working to catch up on research and trying to get your papers published and finalize the papers that are half finished and so forth. So I would say research. That's, that's summer. What are the topics on your mind at the moment in research-wise? Well, I'm into theory, uh, and I do entrepreneurship theory primarily, looking into what entrepreneurs do and what their function is in the market economy and so forth. So I am, uh, I'm doing a, a lot of the sort of boring pseudo-bureaucratic stuff, which means I'm rewriting papers and I'm, I'm restructuring papers and I'm, I'm just going through um, the texts and making sure that they're uh, precise enough uh, that they're all aligned to the conclusions, that there are no tangents <laughs> that I'm going out on and, and no additional topics. And I'm not covering any ground that is not necessary for the conclusions and things like that. So it's it's really sort of boring stuff. I mean, it's not thinking and it's not pushing the edge. It's not breaking new ground. It's It's just editing, basically. Besides technical parts of it, what are the great ideas? What are the revelations? Well, um, I guess my, my big aim right now is to sort of correct the field of entrepreneurship and, and put them on the right track again, which is um, in a sense a part of my other goal, which I use Twitter for and, and other, other writings to get economics back on track to where it was before. Uh, to put it very briefly, economics has sort of lost its way and they're not studying when? in... When? When? Um, in, in the 1930s, I would say, around then. Okay. Can you elaborate a bit for those who are ignorant? Yeah, in 1936, uh, John Maynard Keynes published his general theory, which sort of created a... Well, it created a revolution in economics and shifted what people are studying and what they sort of assume is the point of the economy and where the market is heading and it put everything turned everything on its head basically uh, and and broke with um pretty much everything economists had done since adam smith and other thinkers in the 1700s what about Karl marx and, and engel and these guys are, aren't they already sort of 
doing things beforehand. So why are you jumping to Keynes from well, Adam Smith? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, all of the 1800s, and that's actually my favorite century in terms of history of thought and things like that, because a lot of interesting stuff happened there. And even though it's it's sort of taught as a, a very boring century with just industry, but there was a lot of in, interesting stuff going on. And and, and you're right, uh, Marx and Engels, uh, Malthus was also in the 1800s, right? I think um, he still is here, you know, with us almost like every week or every every other tweet. <laughs> well, true, and, and you could make the same claim about Marx, right? <laughs> that he's also among us still. Uh, but in the 1800s, they they were sort of considered on the fringe and didn't have much impact, and 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 there were very few of them, and and the mainstream of economic thought, all of those other guys, they were basically laughing at them. And they were debating them, but they were saying, oh, you just, you just got everything wrong, that sort of thing. But with Keynes, it was different because Keynes completely changed how economists do economics. But in a sense, he was following that sort of what I call the dark side of economics with Malthus and Marx and Keynes. But so he, you're saying he was a populist? Uh, for sure. I think that was sort of the, the point of what he was doing. Um, I mean, he what he did, to put it very briefly, the thinkers before him had thought of the economy as sort of a, a system in and by itself. So it has some sort of harmony or at least some sort of order to it. Uh, not necessarily that it's perfect or anything like that, but it has a, an order and a a way that it works, mechanisms and functions in itself, uh, which means if you want to refine something, you have to be very careful because if you're just going for a quick change and not thinking it through, you will cause a lot of unintended consequences. Um, politicians, of course, they always... Sounds like a system of mathematics in a way. Yeah, right, but more of a social system, right? So, I mean, it, it's, it starts with simple exchange, and recognizing that, well, we exchange voluntarily because we both think we're going to be better off with what the other guy has. but that, uh, And so the cost to us, to what we're giving up, is, is lower than the gain that we expect to get from it, subjectively speaking. Right? And from there, if lots of exchanges, there are really no contradictions involved. Right? So there could be uh, outcomes of this process that we might not like, but there's nothing contradictory in the process itself of course this this uh, limits what politicians can do because they can't really make this much better through simple means and just signing a law uh, into effect and then look at that they created a better future it's not that easy right and and they really want to um, when you have a business cycle for instance when you have a recession they want to save people and and of course, people are better off in the in the in the short term too. So they want to spend a lot of money, for instance, um, and thereby, in a sense, they're they're buying their votes too because they're more likely to get reelected if if they give people a check or two uh, than if they don't. And they say, well, things will work itself out, right? So if they do something, whatever it is they do, it doesn't really matter. But then they're more likely to get reelected and more likely to. Uh, get glory and fame and so forth. And Keynes, in a sense, produced a theory that facilitated politics. So he, he turned everything on its head by saying simply that, well, in the long run, we're all dead, uh, which is sort of a famous quote. 
the older economists, they were looking at the long run, seeing that, well, costs in the long run, that that doesn't make gains in the short run worth it because the cost can be so big if you affect the whole system. Uh, whereas to Keynes, it was more, more like, well, we don't really need to care all that much about the long run because what matters is the pain in the moment right now. So even if we cause more problems down the road, we can solve those when we get to them in with more short-term action. And of course, that speaks well, to any anyone who wants to change society, right? Yeah, and if you think about the politicians, you know, they are elected only for a few years. So that's like the perfect solution. Exactly. So, so he's, I mean, whether he intended to uh, provide politicians with power or if that was just what happened, happens to be the outcome. Uh, well, who knows? I never met the guy, right? But that was what he did. And of course, he had a lot of um, supporters right away, those who wanted wanted to use government to shape society and, and, and so forth, they, of course, find those ideas attractive. Yeah, I think that was sort of in the air for probably, I don't know, for decades already, and that was probably the culmination of the thing. There was already the Federal Reserve was put in place and a lot of other steps. But oh, sure. That was, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying Keynes was the only one who came from out of nowhere and, and just changed everything. Uh, there was always this struggle, but but for whatever reason, we, we talk about the Keynesian avalanche because it's just changed everything and it came and buried basically the old way of, of seeing the economy. And something made his work a tipping point. And there was always the struggle between uh, seeing the economy as sort of an, a system in itself and People back in the day, they even talked of about the uh, economic organism, right? So that's how they saw it as, a, as something that that works. All the parts are part of a whole, and there are some there are balances, and there's a, some kind of harmony and order to the whole thing by itself. Um, and and that's that that com- they were uh, a majority and most influential in economics until Keynes, pretty much. They weren't. Uh, free market radicals or anything like that. Uh, but they, they still saw that there, there are two spheres to society and one is the economic sphere and one, the other is the political sphere. And, and if the political affects the economy too much, we're going to see a, a very uh, bad results, detrimental results. So are you actually saying that the uh, future doesn't always mean that we're going forward you know it's progress so in a way we've been going backwards since the 1930s in economics yes absolutely i mean the, i i mean development happens along many axes right so of course we have become a whole lot uh, more well advanced and sophisticated in terms of mathematical modeling and statistical analyses and things like that. But in terms of economic thinking, sure, I think we have taken great steps backwards. Have you run into theories or maybe have your own hypothesis why the mainstream failed? Why the mainstream economists sort of, you know, flipped to the minority and then almost like vanished? I'm not sure. I mean, there are so many things that happened. I mean, this was uh, during the depression, uh, between two world wars. Uh, there was a, a, I guess, a, a, a backlash against uh, 
the enormous uh, creation of wealth through industrialization following the Enlightenment. So there were so many things um, at once. Um, it, it's, I think it's a very interesting case because it completely changed how people perceive what they're studying over the course of just a, a decade or two. Um, I'm reading a book now by Stephen Cates, who is, has done a lot of work on trying to interpret uh, Keynes and figure out what Keynes was doing. And, and I mean, his, his focus is, is this shift um, and his focus is on, on Say's law and different perceptions of, of what... What uh, is uh, Say's law? Well, that's, that's part of the story that Steve Cates tells. Um, that, that's one of, of the things that where Keynes sort of produced a straw man that is close enough to what people believed so that they accepted it. But with the straw man, he was able to undo it and sort of ridicule it. So Say's law was actually never called Say's law until the 1900s, uh, but it was the law of markets where um, economists understood that uh, production precedes consumption and that uh, demand is constituted by supply. So basically in a a market setting, um, I can demand, which means that I am willing and able to to pay for a good, uh, and, and buy it at a certain price because I have already supplied something to the economy. So I have purchasing power because I have already worked and earned a wage or because I have already promised to uh, work for someone else and, and was paid in advance or something like that. But I have to earn... So it's basically like the volatile exchange we were talking about just a minute ago. Exactly. I provide you something and, and you provide me something. So we are actually contributing both and that enables us to do something. Exactly. And, and in a market setting, it's very decentralized, right? So what I'm producing is probably stuff that I never, ever use myself. But since I'm producing it, I earn an income that I then can use to buy stuff that others produce. So I can, even though I'm, I'm really selling um, entrepreneurship research and uh, lectures education, which I'm not much of a consumer of, uh, not anymore anyway, uh, that means I... I earn production uh, purchasing power so that I can buy food and and uh, a car and, and things like that that other people are better at producing but Keynes um, rephrased this into supply creates its own demand which of course is a little bit silly because if you think of the words then simply producing something doesn't mean that people demand it and any well, entrepreneur knows that this is ridiculous, right? <laughs> that producing well, that actually stuff. sounds like a lot like a Marxist, uh, you know, labor theory of value. You just, you know, yeah, you work and it has value. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if it if there is some connection there too. Um, and I mean, it's easy to to make fun of that statement. Supply creates its own demand because uh, it's so ridiculous. Uh, but it's close enough to you have to supply in order to demand. Uh, and the of course, that also means that whatever I can demand is equivalent to the value I have contributed through my supply. So there's a um, an equality there between my demand and my supply, right? Because I can't demand more than I have supplied. So so I mean, it's, it's close enough. But on, on the face of it, it's ridiculous. 
uh, and and therefore he was able to. I, I guess people were willing to listen to it as well, <laughs> but but he was able to debunk in a sense the straw man, and that straw man is uh, of course dead, and it's properly dead, I would say. But uh, I don't think anyone from the at least not economists from the 1800s would um, agree with how Keynes put it. Can we ever learn anything from history? Because it seems like every new generation is just, you know, repeating the same mistakes. That's why Bastiat was writing something in the, you know, in the 1900s, and then there was 100 years later, uh, there was a, another famous person at this time in the U.S. who wrote exactly the same thing, Henry Hustlitt, uh, Economics in One Lesson, pretty much like 100 years later. And probably we need another Henry Hustlitt now to do the same thing, and basically the same things are still with us. Yeah, I mean, good ideas uh, should be repeated. But I, a problem now, I guess, is that we are focusing so much on on quick contributions being fast and and just adding to it that we don't even take time to study the past and i mean it's that's part part of the problem i have with um economics of today is that they don't really consider anything worthwhile to read uh that is older than 10 years so it's it's sort of the, a weak theory of history, the assumption that uh, whatever is now is it, it includes it incorporates all that was worth knowing that was done before, and everything else was sort of weeded out through this process. So there there is nothing and can be nothing historically that they learned that we don't already know that isn't already part of the most recent. Um, formulations of our science and, and our knowledge on in any area basically right so it's you're just adding to it you're just improving it all the time um, and I think this to in some sense I guess that could be the case in strictly empirical research simply because you just get more and more data and more and more refined data and then you more and more refined methods of interpreting the data and then you should get to better and better conclusions but on a sort of a superficial level that would work but that doesn't work at all in the social sciences where everything is about human beings acting and perceiving things and how they actually value things where they are and dependent on their culture and their values and what they feel at the moment and things like that so you can't just collect data and and think that that's going to hold forever because it never does. What is the value of entrepreneurs in the society? What are they contributing? Are they contributing anything? Who? Uh, founders, uh, people who are creating you know, entrepreneurs. Oh. Yeah, I'd like to say that they are creating our tomorrow. Um, so... I mean, the, what entrepreneurs do is they sort of envision or imagine that they can produce something um, that will make people better off at some future point in time. And then they try to get there. And of course, along the way, they learn where, where they're wrong and where they're right. And they can sort of perfect uh, those goods. But um, I think we have basically everything to uh, 
to be grateful to entrepreneurs for everything that we have and everything that we will have. Because uh, without them, we would at best just repeat what we're doing. Um, but I think we would probably lose a lot along the way. Are they underappreciated by the society? Yeah, I I think they are in some sense. I mean, there's also the hype around entrepreneurship, right? So, uh, take in, in terms of that sort of goes back to our discussion about Keynes a minute ago. That what he did was instead of looking at the creation of value and then distribution of value that that follows, which the classical economists did, uh, his focus and all of macroeconomics focus today is is just employment and making sure that there are jobs and in that sense i mean we are sort of recognizing entrepreneurs as job creators um i, I in that sense I, they might actually be overvalued because I, i think creating jobs is is not what they should be focusing on and it's not really their contribution um, but i think they're undervalued and underappreciated in terms of uh, their failures because we probably learn a whole lot more from those entrepreneurs who fail uh, and thereby facilitate success by others uh, than the entrepreneurs who who succeed because success can if you ask entrepreneurs who have been really successful pretty much everyone would say that they oh it was luck uh they They didn't. They didn't know much, and they just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and they didn't really understand it. But they happened to do the right thing, and things like that. I think uh, that's not necessarily accurate. Uh, it's so, sort of a little too modest. Uh, but there is luck involved, of course. Uh, but there's also learning. So very often, a new idea is implemented by a number of people at pretty much the same time, but doing it in different ways. Most of them fail. And of course, whoever is best at adjusting to and recognizing why they failed would be able to incorporate that in their own solution and thereby avoid that mistake. So everything that we have, all those disruptive goods and all those sort of leaps forward that we take in technology and different types of services and in business models and so forth, um, they are really the result of a longer process where a lot of entrepreneurs were weeded out because they didn't get it sufficiently right. And I think we underappreciate the failures, so to speak. So what is market? What is the, you know, the discovery process and, and you know, the whole, whole system, you know, which is, so basically that's what it is. You, you fail You know, if not now, later on, you know, that's the fate of every company in the market. You know, there will be a time and they are no more. So how, how does that whole thing actually work? I think that's part of what you're trying to figure out, isn't it? Right. Yeah, that's that's core to what, what I'm trying to do. And at, at sort of a um, scholarly level, so trying to get all the bits and pieces to fit together and figure out exactly exactly how it works. Um, I mean, on a superficial level, we can all see that, well, there's a sort of a trial and error process and, and th those who do not work out, they they are weeded out quickly and the resources are then made available to whoever is better at figuring that out. 
uh, and thereby sort of an evolutionary process. I think most people can recognize it on that sort of abstract level. But then the question is, okay, but what exactly do entrepreneurs imagine and, and what distinguishes entrepreneurs from other people and what makes them take the plunge, what makes them believe the world will be different and what makes them figure out what people might actually want. Because, um, I mean, the entrepreneurs, they, they create a lot of stuff, but they are not the final arbiters, right? They are not the ones deciding whether it's valuable or not. They, they probably and hopefully think that what they're doing is valuable. But at the end of the day, they will only um, make a product or service available to people in general, and then consumers are sovereign. They, they will say, oh, cool, I'm willing to pay a price for that, and I'm willing to pay enough of a price for that for you to cover your costs, or they will not. And if they do not, then the entrepreneur has failed. So do you have any secrets for those founders or people who actually have their own business and they're building it? You know, what have you learned you know, with all your years mm-hmm. in research and studying? Can you share some of the things which are not so widely known? Yeah, it really comes down to having the right uh, rule of thumb, I think. Um, and something I stress and have done in, in, in my columns for Entrepreneur Magazine and in podcasts and, and so forth, and also in my teaching, is to really think about it in terms of value. Uh, and of course, entrepreneurs do this, but they do this in terms of usually dollar amounts or euro amounts and things like that. And that's not what I mean. Uh, what I mean is to think about it not as a production process from inputs and costs through production to offering a product with a price and then getting the sale, but exactly the other way around. So what entrepreneurs often do and what they do wrong is is calculate. They, they, have a, they sort of envision the product. They calculate what the price would be to create this product at a certain quantity. And then based off of that, to sort of add a markup to cover uh, their profits. And then that will be the price. And then they go to the market and try to sell it. Um, this is a, a, a great way of fail, failing. If, if that's your goal, then that's how you should do it. But what I say is that you should do it exactly the other way around because the consumer is sovereign. So you should start by thinking, okay, how? but how is this what I'm offering valuable to the consumer and what exact consumer is it? What type of of demographic, what type of person, what type of situation uh, will this be of value? And how much? So what what type of price can you charge for this product so that this customer segment thinks that that's a pretty good deal. I'm going to buy this thing because I'm going to get so much more out of it than the, the dollars or euros that I spend on it. And then your job as an entrepreneur is simply to figure out that price and then keep your costs below that price. And the difference between the two, of course, is your profit. But see, it's exactly the opposite of how we usually think about it. And most entrepreneurs would start with thinking that, oh, I need to produce this product or I'm going to start a dry cleaner. And then they start calculating the costs and then then figure out the price based off of cost plus profit. And then they start advertising or, or open the shop or whatever. They should do it exactly the other way around. I mean, that's a, I think that's a very powerful rule of thumb. It's a powerful way of avoiding mistakes uh, that most entrepreneurs, I, I fear, are making. 
So why is that? The, what do you say makes sense and it's simple enough to understand? But you know, why it's not like that you're like a billionaire telling that to everyone and we still see a lot of companies failing, a lot of startups and even big companies doing it the wrong way? What's the matter with people? Yeah, well, that's a bigger question, I think. <laughs> But um, I think part of it is simply that they have not really been exposed to these ideas. And, and um, many entrepreneurs, especially serial entrepreneurs, as we call them, when, when they've tried and failed a few times, they sort of get a, an idea of how to do things right, but they don't have the terminology. So... Um, They, they don't think about it in, in sort of an explicit way, but of course now many, many of the tools that we use in teaching and so forth uh, are based off of finding um, the willingness to pay and, and things like that. So they're sort of getting close to this. But unfortunately, you mentioned big and established companies, why they do this wrong. And I, I think the problem there is to a great extent, I would say, uh, formal education we teach them the wrong stuff um, so so we are actually creating the problem and it's a problem really that comes from uh, seeing the economy as as a modern economics sees it in terms of equilibrium um, states and then with existing supply and demand curves and then all you need to do is figure out the price and then you keep the cost lower and, and things like that whereas That's not really how it works. I don't think any large corporation can survive very long without innovating and without being entrepreneurial. So it's not really about managing what is, but it's about meeting the future and creating the future, even if you are a, a huge corporation. So are you saying that we actually came back to the same place with the discussion we had previously? It's all about gains and the supply. In a sense, yes. but. Uh, uh... I mean, this is larger than Keynes because Keynes was not the inventor of supply and demand curves in equilibrium. <laughs> so that, that, that precedes Keynes. Um, but it's this, this uh, I don't know, this fascination with and wish to see the economy as a system uh, that can be engineered and steered and directed and fine-tuned uh, rather than an organism that works the way it works and what you can do is simply try to um, help it in some sense, right? Uh, we're, I think as human beings, we really want to be able to uh, get in, into the engineering and tweak things and, and uh, uh, perfect how it works uh, and, and optimize the system and doing that Uh, creates a lot of problems if we're thinking of society in terms of a machine rather than as an organism. Maybe that's the real issue. It's about power, being in control, understanding, sort of having some kind of sense of, you know, that there are some knobs and, and levers you can just, you know, tweak and turn and, and things will turn your way, a system that works. Well, yeah, and I think that's, that's sort of how we teach management. Um, That, that they are supposed to be sort of the control center of the corporation. And then you have labor units and you have capital units as machines and so forth. And then you have inputs and you have outputs and all you need to do is sort of maximize what is going on. That's sort of what, what is, is taught. If, if I simplify uh, quite a bit and exaggerate a little bit, I mean, that's, 
that's what an MBA program is about. Um, training managers to become uh, the, the control system of the corporation and make sure to just cut away uh, the waste in, in the organization and make sure that you just maximize that output. Um, in terms of number of goods, because right, you have already discovered sort of what, what goods you're selling and what goods you can sell at a profit. So you're sort of excluding entrepreneurship, which is also what economics does, exclude entrepreneurship from the model and then you try to maximize it. And I, I think that's completely wrong. And one of my pet peeves uh, is the cost plus method for pricing, which is still being taught in MBA programs, which is exactly what, what, I, what we just talked about as being the wrong way of approaching it where you calculate the cost it, it would take to produce a good and then you add your profit margin and that's the price you're going to charge. That's the cost plus method, which is exactly the reverse of what you should be doing, it, even as a corporation. You mentioned the regular way of teaching and also conducting business. It just uh, put me thinking about the Taylorism and, you know, the 1900, you know, that sort of industrial revolution where you, you were just, you know, figuring things out and uh, pushing out t forts that era of, you know, production and, and, you know, running society. So maybe we need a revolution in the education as well. Well, yeah, probably. And you're right. I mean, that's uh, Taylorism or scientific management where they... Uh, basically just wrote down how how much time does it take to stretch out your arm and how much time does it take to squat and lift this thing up and then they just calculated how, how many squats should a worker be able to do in 10 hours <laughs> and then they organized uh, the business around those um, calculations and if you didn't reach those goals you were not a good worker so you should get lost basically and I, I don't think that management the way we teach it today is very far from it um, at least not in, in the fundamentals. Uh, there, there's a lot more knowledge, of course. There's a lot more psychology involved. There's a lot more of seeing people and fitting um, skill sets and attitudes. And, and so there's a whole lot more that we've learned about it. But it really boils down to this uh, the, the, the knobs and levers and, and things like that where you try to just maximize output in terms of the physical goods produced. And that, as, as an Austrian economist, that's, that bothers me quite a bit for, because the economy is not about physical stuff. It's not about producing uh, goods. It's producing the value that goods provide to people. So uh, any business should not really be maximizing the number of iPhones, but they should be, make sure to produce the most valuable type of iPhone that they can find. Because that's how you satisfy consumers. That's also how you can charge the higher price. And that's, that's how you can make the most out of those scarce resources that we have as a society. So it's, it is about maximization, but it's about value maximization and not, not the engineering type. And I think... I mean, you said, should, should we want a uh, revolution in education? And, and yes, in, in social science, we need a revolution um, to get back to basics, get back to the roots and recognize value, subjective value, consumer value, consumer satisfaction, and then 
go from there? And, and how do we get more consumer satisfaction out of this thing? Um, and recognize people as humans and not people as simply um, nuts and bolts and, and uh, suppliers of labor and suppliers of money or, or whatnot else. Is that why you tweet? One tweet at a time, you, you're going to make the world a better place and educate the masses. Well, I hope that is the the effect it has. <laughs> I'm not sure Twitter is is the right means for that, but that that is how I use Twitter. Um, so, I mean, I'm sort of dedicating my account to commentary that aims at dispelling uh, economic illiteracy, because I think there's a fundamental economic illiteracy of. People in general have it, uh, but I don't think you can blame people in general all that much because if you don't have, if you don't have the interest and you don't have the, edu- the education, and you've never sought to really understand something, then you can't really blame them for not understanding it. But the problem is also that those who have education and have um, attempted to understand it, they're using the wrong tools and they're they're going about it the very wrong way. So, in that sense, I'm. Twitter is is doing exactly the same thing as I'm doing in my research and my teaching. It's just aimed at a different audience, you could say. What is the one uh, idea you found that you know it really takes off in a Twitter, or you remember maybe something from the past years? You know, just like wow, I probably did something here. Well, it's funny because it's actually the, those fundamental. Uh, theoretical assumptions that seem to take off. And I mean, before I started tweeting Twitter, I understood it as this really fast paced, short commentary. And I mean, back then it was 140 characters. And when did you start? Um, well, I signed up very early, but I didn't do anything with it because I couldn't figure out why I would just basically spew out my emotions because that's the only thing you could do in 140 characters. You could tell someone that they were stupid or I love you, but that's basically what you can do. And it was not really a, a platform for discussion. Uh, but then after meddling with it a little bit and, and well, probably years, but um, figuring stuff out, I, I noticed that I think it was Mark Andreessen who started the, the founder of a, Netscape, the browser, and uh, he's a venture capitalist now in, in Silicon yeah, Valley. And everything. Right, exactly. Uh, I think he coined uh, and started the uh, tweet storm concept, where you start, you write basically, and it's an argument or or a narrative or information in several tweets following each other. So I started doing that too, and those seem to be taking off. So when it's um, it's a it's a great way of teaching teaching you humility, I guess, because when I, I tweet something that I think is super clever and fits in one tweet, that usually does not take off at all. But then I, I write down what I know about value or pricing, just like we talked about how how you should be go about pricing something, and it turns out to a, a tweet storm of 25 30 tweets and it's really it's really economic theory so it's really dry sort of boring that usually takes off so it's much easier apparently at least for me 
to write a theoretical mini treatise on Twitter and have people react to it and retweet it and share it everywhere than it is for me to be clever about what I'm writing. So basically what you're saying is that uh, if you have an idea, you should, uh, you know, previously you just write an article. I think that's what Mark Anderson did as well. He was, I think he was blog post, you know, he was doing posts. Uh, he had a blog before and, and then he started to do the Twitter and, and, and the tweet storms. So now you just basically chop the article in, you know, sentences and you just post them for the uh, attention span of uh, five seconds people and, 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 you know, there you go. I guess that is pretty much it. Um, I, and I think uh, a, a major difference is that when I do it in the in the form of tweets, I write it differently than if I write a, a, a longer text, right? So I write a lot of uh, columns and articles and things like that for different websites. And I've been doing that for a very long time. And when I write those, I think about them very differently when I'm writing them. It's something I notice myself. But when I write them as write something as a tweet, it's much more of an argument. It's it's intended to be much more punchy in some sense. It's more to the point, uh, and I, I have to explain things in very few words. Whereas in a in an essay or a blog post, I can take a full paragraph, but I don't get a full paragraph in, on Twitter. So I, I I've been fortunate enough to. Uh, be associated with the Mises Institute, and they have republished several of my tweet storms as articles. Uh, so they basically just take the tweets, uh, they edit them a little bit, and they post them as an article on the website. And it's in very interesting when I read those and those other articles that I've written as articles for the same website, and I see them basically side by side, how different they are in tone and how I'm expressing things. So it's it's obvious that I'm doing something different, but I have no clue what I'm doing different. Are you also discovering, are you sort of developing your ideas and finding new things and, you know, is it helping in your in your work? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I probably wouldn't uh, be able to continue doing this. But that's that's really how I use writing in general. That's how I use teaching in the classroom. Um, people would probably assume that as a professor of entrepreneurship with a PhD and all this stuff, um, you would enter the classroom and you would talk to students and they would sort of open their, their brains for this information that I throw at them and they would learn it and regurgitate on an exam and, and that's it. That's education. But I use it. I, I teach more as a sort of discussion format. And, of course, it's about teaching them what I know that they do not yet, because otherwise, what's the point of education? But it's also, I learn a lot about how they respond to certain ideas and how I express them and how they, how they understand certain expressions based off of their own unique background and everything like that. Right? So in, in Twitter, it's exactly the same way that I get, I get a lot of pushback from from both people who follow me and agree and people who are simply um, antagonistic and they they hate what I stand for or whatever and and they are they are basically there to uh, punch holes in, in whatever I say some of them are there just nasty people and they just want to tell me I'm a dick but 
but others, when, when they actually address the ideas, I try to discuss with them and push back a little bit and explain what I meant and ask what they meant and everything. And those new perspectives are super important to understanding what you yourself uh, think that you already know. So I, I'm learning a lot through, through tweeting these things uh, and, and uh, teaching them as well. So who are the people we should follow, you know, who are talking about uh, entrepreneurship and probably the maybe economics and, and, you know, these important things? Who we should follow on Twitter? No. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, most people don't really use Twitter for, for that purpose. Um, and I think you can really learn something from, from anyone who is expressing ideas, uh, trying new takes, and is open for uh, different perspectives and so on. I mean, I, I follow a lot of Austrian economists um, who, who comment on articles and comment on other people's comments and so forth. And I think that is very interesting I, and I learn a lot about the Austrian takes on things can you can you actually briefly explain what is this Austrian thing and, and you know can you name a few few people you're following as well sure yeah yeah of course so Austrian economics is is one of the marginalized schools of thought in economics so when we when we enter a classroom and learn economics that's mainstream view. Uh, it used to be the case that economics had several different schools of thought with different approaches and a little bit different theories and so forth. Um, economics is not like that anymore. But if you study sociology, they will have, they will throw a different, a dozen different schools of thought at you with different theories and different explanations for social phenomena. So economics is sort of... Um, attempted to optimize, I suppose, maximize uh, by getting rid of different ideas because it's waste. So Austrian economics is one of the three uh, main schools of thought after the 1870s. And the 1870s was uh, a very important decade in economics because that's sort of the turn from classical economics, from Adam Smith through Ricardo and you mentioned Marx before, uh, and and then in the 1870s was the marginalist revolution where this new idea that things are valued on the margin. Um, so it's it's not a matter of of how much how many eggs are bought and for how much money in total, but how much an egg is worth to you and of course the first one is worth more than the second one and so forth the more eggs you have the lesser the value of losing one and by by analyzing everything on the margin that opened up a, a lot of new uh, types of questions that could be answered and, and types of well, you could answer questions that had been asked before that you couldn't find answers to So Austrian economics was one of the three. Uh, it started at the University of Vienna through uh, a book, book by Karl Menger, who was a professor at the University of Vienna, which was basically the Harvard back then. He wrote Principles of Economics, uh, starting with subjective value and, and talking about how, how we value things subjectively 
uh, on the margin. Um, and then it's been a, a tradition since. It's been um, a school of thought that has uh, made a lot of uh, noise, I guess, started and was uh, very active in many of the big debates in terms of economic ideas. So there's a big debate on socialism for 30 years in economics from 1920 to basically the end of World War II. There was a, a big debate on what what is capital and how how important is it, what are the implications. There was a big debate with Keynes on employment and business cycles. And all of these debates, the Austrians were on one side and some others were on the other side. So it's, it's sort of been a, a more or less dead school since economics became so this one uh, school and everything else is marginalized. So there are still Marxists around, um, but uh, other than Marxists and, and uh, Austrians, there are really no uh, marginalized schools. Uh, Austrian economics has found a little bit of a resurgence in the past decade or so, but it's still a small school without any influence, really. So why are you in the margin? Where am I? Yeah, I just, are... you know, just try to play a bit with the words, you know, just the marginal revolution and why you by the margin at the moment, you know, you're not in the mainstream. I think this is uh, a segue we can also go a bit more deeper to the, how did you find the Austrian economics and economics? Because you didn't start as a, economist and theorist you you were basically doing things you were you know startup founder as well and, and you know right before going there i think it's just uh, curious and interesting to know that uh, why you're not part of the mainstream right and i think the, i think the, the main reason um, why austrian economics is not part of the mainstream is that okay, austrian economics used a completely different method and austrian economics does not think that math and statistical analysis is of any kind of worth in terms of uh, producing theory. So it really goes back to uh, philosophy of science in the past hundred years or so. That when we're, if we're studying the, the social world, which we are, of course, we were studying e the economy, then Austrians would claim that, well, what we're really talking about is how people subjectively value things. And people's subjective value that could have whatever psychological um, rationales or, or origins, but how they act is explained on how they see things, which is sort of an obvious point. But it also means that if they value things differently suddenly, if they shift their valuations for whatever reason, their actions will change as well. So it's behavioral in a in in very fundamental sense. Um, and therefore, you cannot use math because if you measure that a certain number of people bought potatoes instead of meat at a certain time, that doesn't tell us anything at all about how much people will prefer potatoes to meat at a different time or different people, right? So, because they will make different valuations depending on the situation they're in. So, you can't really use math and statistics to explain what is actually going on. So, in terms of the theorizing on the economy, it has to be deductive from first principles. So you create a system of understanding the economy logically based off of this recognition of subjective value as a determinant in a sense of action, right? And then based off of this 
Austrians see the economy, as you mentioned before, as a mar- the market as a process and not as a system or a machine that is just running. Um, it's a process that is evolving over time um, and there are more discoveries and it's, it, it pivots too. It suddenly goes in different directions and no one could really have foreseen this, but entrepreneurs are creating it consistently. Um, and the, the other view would be to say that no math and statistics, that's the way to go. And we, we just need better measurements and better, more refined instruments to figure out exactly um, how people prefer things and, and, and what to produce and, and so forth. And that's what mainstream economics has sort of done. Uh, that's also why they have uh, excluded the entrepreneur from their theories. So if you study economics, if anyone ever mentions the entrepreneur, it is what they mean is basically the creation of new small businesses. Um, and they don't mean imagining new products. They don't mean disruption. They don't mean uh, creation because everything is just production and the meeting of supply and demand and, and uh, maximizing the system and, and so forth. So it, Austrian economics is is pretty influential in the study of entrepreneurship and also in, in management for that reason, that it sees the economy as a dynamic process that, that evolves over time and, and changes and sort of reflects um, consumers' valuations and consumers' wants. And entrepreneurs are competing with each other, trying to figure out how to best serve consumers. So it's... It's a very different view of the economy overall that is very similar in some sense to how it was viewed before Keynes to reconnect to that discussion. So it's sort of the, in a sense, it has survived uh, the Keynesian avalanche, but barely since it's so marginalized. Uh, But it views the economy as this almost harmonious uh, system there's at least a, a, an order to it that is not planned from above. So it's an order that comes out of people in, interacting and trading for to benefit themselves. But they can only do that in a market setting by uh, producing gain for other people. So, I mean, that's, that's basically what entrepreneurs do uh, fundamentally, right? They produce goods that they think will be of benefit to consumers. And if they're right, they're actually benefiting consumers they can earn a profit from doing that, right? So there, there's no con- contradiction there. It's a little bit like Adam Smith's invisible hand uh, at, at the core of, of, the, of the market process. So are you saying that it's a natural choice for a, you know, entrepreneur mind person who is, you know, used to building things and, and you know, just doing something by oneself and, and not being part of a bigger machinery? Yeah, if you like building things and you like a system builder, that's, you know, Austrian economics is for you. I think so. And I mean, in my experience, entrepreneurs have, I mean, with the experience they have from how the economy works and how damn hard it is to figure out what people want to buy and especially what people will buy. I mean, they, in a sense, they discover Austrian economic theory uh, by doing it. Um, and they discover that doing certain things will not work and that does not ever work. 
But what does work is thinking about it in very Austrian terms. They just lack the language. So I think uh, entrepreneurs in general would gain a whole lot by studying Austrian economics. And I'm actually involved in a project, uh, Economics for Business, uh, trying to do exactly this, trying to sort of, in a sense, translate Austrian economic theory to something that anyone can understand and that speaks to entrepreneurs, provides them with a little more, more terminology and, and at least put, puts words to things that they know tacitly, that they haven't been able to express in clear terms, but that we actually do know, but that they have not come across. So I think there's a lot of, that, can, that can, can be gained from practical entrepreneurs and theoretical Austrians, in a sense, uh, getting together and becoming friends. So they're like practical economists. Right, in a sense, uh, that, that's exactly it. And, and I mean, it goes back to Austrian roots, in a sense, because uh, Karl Menger was really a, a journalist writing on, on about the economy. So he was writing about finances, he was writing about econo- any economic phenomena and so forth. Uh, and that's how he sort of figured out how things actually worked. And from there, he started addressing sort of a, or producing a theoretical framework for how to understand the whole economy based off of that understanding. So, I mean, it sort of comes from practice, even though it's, it's formal theorizing is not empirically driven, if you see what I mean. I mean, it's, it's not uh, running databases with empirical data like mainstream economists are doing, but it's understanding what are the actual motivations of people in the economy and then from there deriving truths about the structure in the economy so getting back to the other part of the question how did you uh, young guy from sweden playing with the commodore 64 find yourself you know in the us uh, many decades later yeah that's sort of a a long story and it's actually it's, um, it's sort of sad in a sense that I was not all that interested in in how things um, actually work I didn't have a theoretical interest in, in the economy or anything like that and I entered the, the realm of Austrian economics as unfortunately most people do today that is through politics and especially through um, getting involved in or at least getting exposed to uh, some form of libertarian-leaning uh, political activism. So that was, a, that was it for me, too. Uh, I was involved in a political party in Sweden where I had some kind of, I don't know, knee-jerk uh, conservative view, perhaps, uh, something like that. But I was uh, somewhat opposed to... Uh, meddling too much with the economy and uh, thinking that people should be able to um, earn their own living uh, and start businesses and not be taxed to death, which was basically the case. We're talking the 70s and 80s in Sweden. So that's sort of the, the heyday of of Swedish uh, welfare statism and, and uh, taxation. So it was, it was not hard to end up thinking that maybe businesses are being taxed too much <laughs> and then fr- from there I was exposed to all these libertarian or semi-libertarian arguments and I thought they were nuts but it's very logical 
So if you accept parts of it, after a while, I mean, the ideas just grow on you. They, you, you, you can't really do anything about it. Because I think the human mind wants, uh, wants to see the world without contradictions, because there are no contradictions naturally. So if you adopt one view in one case and you adopt some other view in another case and they're contradictory, there's a cognitive dissonance there that is causing frictions in your thinking, I think. Um, it, it, uh, it gives you a headache in, in some sense, right? So, and you wanna, your brain wants to get rid of it. So you need to find a, a, a way of, of bridging the two ideas or finding a principle where, where you can find a solution to both. And, and I mean, libertarian thought is based off of, it's, it's similar to Austrian economic theory in the sense that there's a one basic principle and then all other conclusions are sort of derived from that principle. It's, it's just deductive, deductive thinking really. But, and then, I mean, then I was sort of a standard uh, conservative, uh, teenager, I suppose, in, uh, with somewhat free market ideas. And then I happened to be exposed to more of those ideas. So in college, I, I left for Honolulu to study there for a, a whole year. Was that your first choice uh, to put the Swedish taxpayers' money in good use and just uh, go surfing? In a sense, it was, right? So it was, I was a very serious student. Uh, <laughs> so I was studying at the International Business School uh, in Jönköping, Sweden. And they took this international part very seriously. So they wanted all students to spend at least one semester abroad. Um, and the Swedish Welfare State, being very generous, offered funding for tuition and so forth and even travel back and forth once a semester and insurance um along with the, the that was a really good deal yeah and i mean they paid you as well they pay you to study in sweden right so and they pay really? you the, yeah wow. and they pay you the same amount when you study abroad but it's adjusted for uh standard of living and stuff like that so so it, it was a really good deal and and i I got the, the opportunity and I applied immediately for a few universities in Australia, California, and Hawaii. <laughs> so I, w- I wanted to get to the sun and the ocean, I suppose. And uh, there was this private university in downtown Honolulu, Hawaii Pacific University, and they responded right away. Uh, as soon as I submitted my application, they sent me a FedEx package with um, information and things like that and called me and whatnot else. So. I applied and I left, and uh, well, it was a great year, uh, of course. Uh, and I happened to—I signed up for two economics courses the first semester, and I was there late. I had no idea how the American higher ed system works, and that you're supposed to put together your own your own weekly schedule with lectures and things like that. Uh, much like high school is in Sweden, but with the choice of which courses to take. Uh, and a lot of the courses were, were not available anymore because I was late. Um, and, but I did find a, a economics courses where I could take two courses by the same professor. So I figured that might be a good idea. Um, so I signed up for those. 
And I had no idea who he was, of course. But he ended up pushing me over the edge in the sense in sort of free market thinking. And he even introduced me to Austrian ideas, even though I had no clue what those were. Um, so he, he pushed me over the edge in terms of the economy, helping me see um, the, the economy as an organism and seeing that there is an order to it and a harmony to it uh, that, is, that we easily can wreck if we're not careful. Do you remember what's the sort of uh, fundamental moment or, you know, some sort of turning point where, where that happened that was like, okay, now it is? Well, I think I was, I mean, he provided the arguments. He's a very good teacher. So he, whatever you say, he's taking, he takes the opposite view and he presented several different views, uh, several different, different uh, types of answers to all questions. So I think, I think he just supplied me with arguments from both sides and just some of those seemed much more accurate to me than the other ones. And he, but I, I remember very clearly one lecture where, um, where I, I, it wasn't a turning point, but it was one where I stood out and it was one where he was comparing schools. He was presenting different schools of macroeconomic thought uh, and, And he put on the board, and I've learned now after, much, many years after, that he put Austrian monetarist Keynesian and Marxist schools up there, and then just some basic ideas that they, uh, they stood for. Uh, and then he asked us, in the class there were many people from many different countries, so he asked where people thought their countries fit in terms of economic policy. Are, are they Austrian? Are they monetarists or Marxist? And there were several other Swedes in the class because um, at this little university there were over 400 Swedish students, <laughs> which tells you a little bit about people's choices wow. when someone else pays, right? <laughs> uh, Did you speak any English there? It's just basically like a, you know, just another campus of Swedes, you know? <laughs> well, I, actually, I. I I decided early on that I was not going to spend time with other Swedes because I was there. I was going to be learning uh, from Americans and from others. So not speak Swedish was sort of a goal. I met some of them, but I didn't hang around with them. I didn't go to their parties and things like that. But funny thing is, I actually shared an apartment with two Finnish guys. Really? Yeah. So I ended up with, in in a hotel room as soon as I got there. That the university arranged for new international students um, and they paired me with a guy from Helsinki and then he met another Finnish guy and as, as that month expired uh, we found an apartment um, uh, by the by the mountains and outside of just outside of Honolulu um, where we shared an apartment for that full year. They, uh, they stuck around and got degrees there, I think, but I, I stayed only one year. But I mean, I, I guess they could speak Swedish in the sense that Finnish people can speak Swedish. <laughs> they very reluctantly, a few words. Only after some absolute. Well, yeah, right, exactly. Or Finlandia, right? Um, so we, we spoke English most of the time, which is probably a good thing when you're in the US, right? But in any case, in, in during that lecture, the other Swedes they they raised their hands when when uh, uh, this professor mentioned Keynesian uh, pub, public policy, 
And I saw several similarities with Marxist policies. So I, I raised my hand when he said Marxism, um, which made all the other Swedes look at me like I was uh, some, some nut. Um, and I think they were probably more accurate that Swedish policy was more, uh, more Keynesian than Marxist. Um, but there was, it was def definitely the case that there were uh, Marxist influences on, on Swedish policy, especially having grown up in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it, it was, there were plenty of at least Marxist rhetoric in Sweden. I'm not sure they actually implemented a whole lot of it, but, but the rhetoric was definitely Marxist. But that's, that's sort of one of those things that I remember from, from the studying in Honolulu where I was like, hmm, I, I, I am obviously a little more radical in my views of things than I thought. And then you put together a website, or you were doing already some web development as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, I did. So as soon as I graduated uh, in 99, I graduated with a master's in informatics. So it's basically systems development with a, a business orientation. Um, and that was uh, in 99 and I was in Honolulu 96, 97. So during those couple of years, I was trying to figure out how uh, a society based off of my fundamental principle of liberty, of individual liberty, how that could possibly work because I had no freaking clue how that would work. Uh, but then I took the plunge uh, or was I forced myself in the sense because I found the solution uh, to how to do this in 98. And then I started the, the website anarchism.net in 99, where I started uh, posting stuff. I, it, was, it was sort of in the early days of, of the web uh, for politics and, and these kinds of movements. So uh, my intention was to post a lot of the books uh, that so that people could read them and, and sort of be a library in a sense and a, a, a gathering place for people with who with a rad, with an interesting sort of radical liberty uh, and, and read the old thinkers learn from that stuff and and there was also a discussion forum and things like that where where people were hanging out quite a lot of people actually very a lot of a lot of activity and debating ideas and it was sort of in a sense the same as I use Twitter for now uh, but in this case, it was ideology. So it was more for a discussion and figuring out arguments, pro and con, different issues, uh, figuring out the best way of expressing yourself and things like that. And that's what, what that website did for many years. It was sort of leading uh, from the beginning anarcho-capitalist. And then as I developed my own political thinking, it sort of turned into agorism and, and then into general anarchist thought and started, um, I published books, whatever I could find, um, and put them on the website. I think many of them are still there so you can read them. I mean, of course, nowadays no one reads, uh, books in the browser anymore. So <laughs> I guess that's not, not interesting, but. But you can still donate money, you know, there's at least a $3 pin you can also purchase as well. I just went to the website and it's still up there. I don't know whether the PayPal actually works, but there's a button to, you know. It does. I actually got an order for a pin 
uh, well, it's months ago now. We ordered uh, hundreds and hundreds of pins, and I still have a few, so you can order them. Um, I should probably take that down because it's a lot of hassle <laughs> for fulfilling <laughs> those orders. But it was a bargain. There was, uh, you know, or, or even the shipping was included. You know, packaging and shipping included in the three bucks. Right, and it's it's worldwide shipping, and but I Is mean, it FedEx. No, not at all. And I mean, it's not even. <laughs> It's not enough money to even put it in a padded envelope, so I basically put it in a regular envelope and then uh, put two sheets of paper around it with some tape, hoping that they will not, uh, that the postal office will, will not uh, destroy the pin while in delivery. Like I said, otherwise it, the, the, otherwise the pin would be a whole lot more. But I think we we ordered those pins must be almost twenty years ago, so. I think they paid themselves off. Talking about the, the memory lane as well, uh, you wrote a thesis called Micropayments on the Internet, Criteria for Micropayment Systems. Mm-hmm. You were saying that, you know, cash and uh, change, you know, those funny things, metal things in your pocket, you know, uh, those are needed for the media, you know, just basically just having micropayments for purchasing, you know, articles and stuff. You know, has anything changed, you know, in those 20 years? Surprisingly little, you know. Uh, and you're talking about my master's thesis in informatics. Uh, and actually, you actually won a prize for, for best thesis in system science or something like that that year. Um, and my co-author and I, we tried to figure out how, how would a, a system for micropayments on the internet work? What, what would be required for it to be both feasible, technologically speaking, and economically, so that people would actually adopt it and use it? Because that's that's back when everybody was talking about, oh, in the future, everybody will pay per article uh, in, when they enter uh, websites for newspapers and things like that. And you would pay for, what, for, for just looking at a picture and things like that, right? So, so you would have to find a way to charge one penny or two pennies or something like that for each thing. And then volume would just make it up uh, and, and cover all your costs and things like that. But no one had figured out how to do it. And that's still the case. I mean, after that, PayPal has sort of come and gone, and um, now we have all these cryptocurrencies, and I guess they could work, but I, it, the, only, the only solution, I guess, is that people nowadays are not afraid to enter subscription services like they used to be, right? So. Uh, the millennial and, and younger generations, they don't mind subscribing to stuff. Whereas I was very reluctant to sign up for stuff like Spotify, for instance, because I wanted to own my music. So I would rather buy a CD and rip it and have the MP3s on my hard drive than pay a monthly fee and set up uh, uh, lists and things like that. Because I would lose them as soon as I chose a different service. Right? I didn't, didn't want to lock myself in. But now subscriptions have become so ubiquitous and so common that people sign up for paying a monthly fee for pretty much everything. So in that sense, in that sense, we micropayments are not as necessary. But I think we still need some kind of system for that. But it's it's amazing how we wrote and defended that in early 1999, and. Things have not really moved since then. I mean, technology is so much better. Softwares are so much better. There's so much more 
commerce online, but it's not really, we don't have a micropayment system. So, and we're still struggling with the same issue. So what we have instead is watching movies and, and so forth online. You, you are either an Amazon Prime member or you're, you're subscribed to Netflix and that's pretty much what you do, right? I don't think it's a technology issue at all. I think there's a friction there. There's a few things, you know, like we we love Prime, Amazon Prime, because you know you don't you don't pay per package, you know, because you hate that. You know, it's the same thing that you know you you just prefer the purchase where there's a free delivery, even though you know it's within the price, but you just hate to pay for the mm-hmm. uh, for the package shipping. And another thing is that while you're subscribing for something, you pay it once and then you can forget that you're paying but each and every click each and every article you do it's like you're bleeding every time you just like you know do i need it i'm paying for that it's i think it's a mental psychological cost involved and that's higher than the sort of paying it once and forgetting or once a month yeah i think you're right and but there should be other ways of doing it i mean there have been some attempts where you sign up for one service and and you you pay money into basically an account and then Whatever, whatever you do, they just take a few cents and what whatnot and send it to to the service you're using. But it's still, it's still something. You're right. There's some something holding you back from from using this type of services. And of course, it's it's also a crowding out phenomenon, right? That you can't really charge per movie when there's so much already included in Prime. So why would you then? buy single movies and watch them once uh, when there's so much that you've already paid for and then you get so much more that sort of thing even though you can I mean, you can rent movies on Amazon but that's a whole lot more expensive it's not really micro payments it's like five or six dollars I think funnily enough at exactly the same time you know in the, in the 2000s early 2000s late 90s uh, Steve Jobs was doing something you know he was unbundling albums so you could just, uh, buy, you know, songs by 99 cents per piece. So you mm-hmm. could just basically combine things. So he was just, you know, from the sort of a bulk of, of having the full album type of subscription. Or it's, well, it's not really a subscription, but, you know, sort of package deal. If you just wanted the hit song and, and not the rest. Right. So and, and, and that makes sense, right? Because very often, why would you buy a whole album when there's only one good song on it? Very few albums have lots of good songs but also basically like a micropayment it's not exactly but you know it's like still yeah yeah you're right why is everything getting so expensive <laughs> yeah that's a that's a deeper question than uh most people might realize uh it's also something that i did discuss quite a bit this issue with inflation and deflation and and i think if you ask people they would say that um, yeah, of course, p- things get most more expensive all the time. That's it's always been like that. that things prices always rise. Has it always? Well, as far as we can remember, as individuals, right? So you mean like last last week? <laughs> well, yeah, you got a point there, I guess. But I mean, for decades anyway, and at least since 1971, it's been the case, uh, and, and probably longer oh, than by that. 1914 or 13 or what was the. Yeah, around there too. Those that's also a cutoff point. But I mean, if you, it's interesting because if you then ad, you push back a little bit and say, well, 
with competition, wouldn't you expect prices to fall? Yeah. Okay. With innovation and productivity increases, shouldn't, wouldn't you expect costs to fall so that businesses can lower the price even more to sell more? Yeah. Okay. So why are prices rising? And I mean, in, in understanding the economy in as an Austrian would understand it, as, as a, uh, an evolutionary process where you discover more and better ways to serve consumers and produce more value uh, at lower cost, things should always fall in terms of price, right? So prices should always go down, much like they have in, in computers and so forth, um, where computers today are dirt cheap compared to computers a couple a decade or two ago uh, and the computers now are so much better too so why is that well i mean it's because there are there's a whole lot more money uh in the economy than before so it's a it's a way of implicitly uh sort of secretly taxing people to uh, uh print a whole lot more money and i mean print sort of figuratively because we don't actually print bills a lot more anymore because everything is so digitalized now. But I mean, the, the reason we don't see falling prices is because we are, or the central banks are creating a lot of money all the time so that there's more money than goods and then that affects the price. And it's more than the official inflation rates and we can talk about how how much they change how they measure inflation, but they're they're talking about the price level that the same types of goods um, uh, have a level of price, and if that level of price goes up, you have inflation. If that level of price goes down, you have deflation. Uh, the natural order of things would be deflation because prices would fall, and the official inflation rate is how much it increases from that measured price level. Well, the real inflation in price would be between the new lower price that we would have gotten and the higher price that we actually got. So the difference between there, which is much higher than, than the official inflation rate, that difference is because we're, we're pumping out new money. So who is benefiting while we're doing that? Well, why are we doing it? Well, uh, simple answer is uh, Keynesian economic thought. Um, it's also so the economists are cashing all the money. Is that what you're saying? Well, they're at least providing the theory to prop up that system. So, who is banking the money? Uh, well, many, but uh, the banking sector and the government, to for starters. So, I mean, the, the way it works. Uh, unfortunately, economic theory has adopted this view that money is neutral, so it doesn't really affect much things. It's basically just a, a, a numeraire when, when you're trading, but it has no effect on things. Uh, Austrians believe differently, and so did the classical economists before. So when, when you're creating new money, it enters the economy in a certain place. It's, it's not the case that we all get half a percent more cash overnight when they print more money. Uh, but it, it enters somewhere, and it enters typically through the banking sector. So uh, one way it's done uh, here in the U.S. is that whenever you get a mortgage to buy a house, that's not money that the bank has, but you apply for the loan 
And if they think that the house is worth enough and that you will be able to pay the interest rate and whatnot, they just hit a couple of buttons on their keyboard and they create the new money in the bank account um, of the, the, seller, the seller of the house. So that is new money. And well, that is obviously entered somewhere in this case in the seller's bank account. Well, that doesn't affect prices because that's just more money in his bank account. But that means that he is richer than he was before. And it doesn't really change a whole lot more, right? Um, and in this case, you have someone buying the house who has a, uh, a debt, but that debt doesn't affect them yet. And it's, it's really new money being created. So when the Fed, for instance, in their quantitative easing, as they have done now since the... What does that mean, actually? Just in the layman's term, bananas and apples. Yeah, What's it, it, easing? Well, it's, it's a term uh, that really comes from sort of Keynesian thought as well. Uh, thinking that there are liquidity problems in the economy. So the easing is simply that adding more liquidity to the economy. So they're, they're printing a lot of money. So from, from the Great Recession with this, what they call quantitative easing, what they've done is simply add about, I think it's $60 billion a month to the economy. Uh, and this is, sounds like a great idea. I mean, if it had it been wealth, that would be fantastic, but it's not wealth. It's not stuff. It's not real it's just money in bank accounts right so uh, and and banks add this and it falls into some people's hands and they use them and they're of course able to buy more stuff than others because they have a lot of this new money so that will bid prices up because suddenly there's more demand for whatever it is they're buying and then they will become richer relatively speaking those who sell those things and whatever they buy in turn, that will bid up prices in the next industry. So this goes as a ripple effect through the economy, changing prices. And of course, people change their behavior with as these prices change. And at the end, most prices will have adjusted to this new level of, of money supply. Um, but some people, those on fixed incomes, for instance, their incomes have not adjusted. So they are they're sort of losing because they have income in old money that was worth more. You could buy more stuff with fewer dollars. And they have costs in new money. So the prices are higher. So they are, they are made worse off. Whereas those who get the money first, they're made uh, better off. And very often, I mean, one way of simplifying this is to say that, well, when you're adding more money to the economy this way, you are taking money from Main Street that is from rural America, basically, or rural any country, uh, small mom and pop stores, regular folks, that sort of uh, situation, and giving it to Wall Street. Because uh, Wall Street, that's where all, all the banks, when they get new money, where does it end up? When it ends, ends up in finance, uh, it ends up in new loans to the whatever hip industry there is and, and, and so forth. Uh, and we, we saw after the dot-com bubble burst, there was a housing bubble created because that's where money went, right? So you had housing prices soaring um, and you had people in, in some of the worst places like Las Vegas, you had bartenders quitting their jobs because they could flip houses instead. They could make a whole lot more money just buying and selling houses because 
house prices were going up so fast because there was a lot of more money and it went went into housing because well for for many different reasons but there was so much more money of uh, available for mortgages and so forth. So people were upgrading their houses or buying houses and, and things like that, which meant cons- contractors were starting to build more houses because there was a whole lot more demand for houses. So we, you started building a lot more houses. And with these prices increasing all the time, you would have these bartenders who don't know anything about uh, real estate, um, but they they saw what was an obvious opportunity. So they started buying a house and they flipped it. So a couple of months later, they sold it and made tens of thousands of dollars in between. And then they expanded. So they bought two houses and they expanded and they could get a whole lot more money until it ends, right? And when prices do not increase anymore and there was the housing bubble burst. Um, So why did that actually happen? Uh, Did the long term just arrived then you know that's sort of the end of the game well this is uh the austrian theory of the business cycle that, that this boom that we saw then in, in housing and that we're seeing now in finance those booms are really unsustainable artificial booms because they're not booms because people's preferences are suddenly for houses or now for financial instruments and stocks but they are caused by creating credit, by creating new money, and that new money ends up in those sectors of the economy. Um, and what that means is that you will have a lot more investment using this new money in those industries, but there's not really uh, an expectation. It's, it's not that entrepreneurs have shifted from other areas of the economy to instead invest in houses. They're investing in houses as well. Right? So they're using this new money to outbid in entrepreneurs who are producing other things. Because there's so much uh, uh, new money and the interest rates on mortgages have, are artificially low and so forth, they, they seem like they are much more profitable than they otherwise would be. But with creating all these new houses, there's really not a lot of people interested in buying them. And they're also out-competing other entrepreneurs, buying resources from other parts of the economy. So those resources are sort of directed towards building those houses that people haven't actually said that they want. So it's, it's, it's sort of a cluster of entrepreneurial errors caused by this new money that makes it seem like there is an opportunity, but there is not really. I mean, the, you can still make money off of it before the burst, but it will burst because there is no actual demand for those things. And you're using resources for building houses that should be used and would have been available in other types of production. So they can't all be concluded. You can't finish all those production processes. So businesses will start going bankrupt and that causes ripple effects too because when one business goes bankrupt that affects of course their suppliers who will no longer get paid and it affects um, competitors too and so forth right so everything in the economy is sort of uh, connected so all of these huge changes they create structural problems so the Austrian business cycle theory is is a, a theory of the full cycle 
whereas most other so-called business cycle theories are theories about the crash only. So an Austrian would start with, with saying, that, well, there's an artificial boom that leads to the crash. The crash is just a correction going back to what is actually real. Um, the boom is sort of imaginary, it's artificial. So the, the way of, of avoiding business cycles and all the problems with recessions and so forth would be first to not cause the boom. You can still have economic growth, you can have sustainable economic growth, and you can have even pretty fast economic growth, but it should be directed by what consumers are likely to buy, not, not through artificial profit opportunities created by, by, by new money. Right? But if you look at other theories, they would just study the crash and they will just assume that, yeah, yeah, yeah boom, that's great. We need more booms because of economic growth. And then why did why do we have a burst? Why, why, why do we have this, this crash? And Austrians would say that that's starting halfway. You can't ever understand what is going on if you start with just the crash because there's something leading up to the crash. And if you start with the crash and see nothing wrong with the artificial boom that led to it, then your solution might be, as it often is, to just print more money and create a new artificial boom on top of the first one. And sort of solve the problem in, in the moment, not looking ahead, not, not thinking about whether this might actually lead to a higher or, or a bigger crash later on. And Austrians would be warning everyone that, hey, building a new artificial boom on top of the other one to solve the problem, that's just kicking the can down the road and creating a bigger problem. It's not going to solve anything. Which is pretty much the discussion we had like uh, one hour ago, maybe a bit more, you know, just, you know, the politis- political cycles and, you know, the short termism. Exactly. And I mean, one, one way of putting it is, is that if you're out in the winter and it's really, really cold and you're freezing, well, I mean, one way of solving it in the short term would be to pee in your pants because that will make it warm and nice and you get relief, no pun intended, right? To, that you, you can say, okay, well, maybe I will get colder later on, but that's a, that's a later problem. That's in the future. Never mind that because it feels warm right now and I was really cold. Of course, since you're wet, well, it's disgusting too, but since you're wet, you're going to be even colder in a little bit because it's still cold outside and you're still outside. Right? So you're not solving the problem. You're just kicking the can down the road and sort of a snowball effect that, that the problem is getting bigger each time. So um, it, it is definitely a, a political problem, like you mentioned, with the short-termism. Um, the problem is also that if you're trying to solve the short-term problem with an, adding another short-term problem on top, those have to be bigger and bigger uh, to cover sort of all the errors and all the problems caused by the, the, the first one because it's still, still crashing, right? So which means that you're going to end up with a huge crisis on your hands. And that's sort of where Austrians are right now, seeing that with the um, stock exchanges, the rally with the soaring uh, indices and everything recently, that's because the Federal Reserve and other central banks have been creating a whole lot more money and it ended up in the financial sector. Well, why? Well, as a result of fixing the, uh, the real estate boom that turns in, turned into a bust that caused the Great Recession, which is now 
what, 12, 13 years ago, which was a solution, quote unquote, to the dot-com bubble in the 99-2000, which was caused equally by artificial, uh, an artificial boom and so sort of cheap money through creating a new money. So, I mean, we are in the mid midst of this snowball uh, rolling down the hill, just getting bigger and bigger, and it might soon get out of hand. Yeah, I hear the singing, you know, by all the central banks in harmony. So, you know, probably we are now in a global setting. Exactly. And I mean, they're, they're of course, propping up each other too, right? So it used to be the case when we had the Great Depression, um, central banks were dealing in gold and, and, and gold is actually real, right? So, so people then, if, if they had bank notes, they could go to a bank and say, I, I want gold for it instead. And you can use it for jewelry and in computers and, and whatnot else. It's, it's something real, right? So it's a, it's a commodity money in some sense. Today, there are no currencies that are backed by anything at all. And, and central banks, they have baskets of other currency to be able to control the exchange rate. But all currencies are simply backed by all currencies. And I mean, that in a sense, it's, it's just a scam. Uh, in, in a sense, it goes, comes close to the whole, it's just a numerary sort of thing, because it's, it's not something real. It's just as long as we trust that money can buy stuff, uh, we will use to buy stuff and people will accept it. But as soon as people stop trusting it, it's going to be worth exactly what a piece of paper with a lot of ink on it is worth, which is almost nothing. Which is That's a huge problem. So if we have a, a depression-like crisis again, I've, I'm not sure I want to see what happens. Yeah, the, we could actually go very deep in this discussion, but I think this is uh, probably a topic for another day. Uh, what is your favorite word? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I wonder if it could be something like something like think, maybe. But the reason I said think is my most favorite is that my least favorite word is feel. Uh, and that's because it's over the past decade or so, it's become common to say when you're answering a question, you don't say it like you used to before that I think that that this is the answer. You say you feel like it's an answer. And I couldn't, I couldn't care less. I, I don't really give a damn what you feel. Because <laughs> when I ask a question, I want the answer, right? Not your feeling. And I think that is a, a huge problem in our day and age that people re suddenly rely on emotions so much more than their mental capacity. Um, and we're sort of turning our backs on, on the enlightenment. And I, that scares me a lot because uh, with... Relying, well, I think that explains a lot as well. It's just like the gut feeling, you know. Right, exactly. And, and I mean, going back, if we rely on emotions and feelings rather than thinking things through and facts and logic, we're going to get back to uh, mystical beliefs and why not witch burnings and, and you have just knee-jerk reactions and you have mobs and so forth and... and I guess this is the time to remind that we're only halfway through 2020. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, 
<laughs> I guess we march on with the questions and not just you know dwell more to that point. Uh, what turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, I would say new thinking, new thoughts, new, new new perspectives, new ways of seeing things. What turns you off? Knee-jerk reactions, perhaps. What is your favorite curse word? Yeah, I wonder if I actually have one. It's not one that I use. I don't know, maybe it could be bollocks or blimey or something like that, something very British. What sound or noise do you love? The splashing of waves. That's something I really like. That's very calming and soothing. And I, I grew up by the ocean, and I was sailing a lot with my family when I grew up. And I just just love the ocean. So the splashing of waves is a fantastic sound. What sound or noise do you hate? I have no idea. I don't know. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? That's also a good question. I'm not sure what I would. What, I know when I was a kid, I wanted to be an author, uh, which I know it's a little odd. Uh, most young boys want to be something like police officer or firefighter or something. I wanted to be an author, but I'm still hoping to be one one day. But aren't you already? Yeah, but it's not my my main. Thing. I mean, yes, I have written books, and yes, I have two books under contract too, and I'm writing a lot of stuff. But I wanted to make that my my uh, main thing. So do only writing and writing what I want to write. Whereas publishing research is it's it's writing, but it's going through peer review process and everything like that. You have to rewrite everything according to other people's directions whereas i i want to uh, elaborate on my my thinking and on my ideas and and doing that through books has been really rewarding and i want to do that full time if possible what profession would you not like to do bureaucrat if you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era which one would you choose i don't know I would choose something in the future for sure, something exciting, but I don't really know what startups are going to be in the future. Any final words for the audience? Well, study Austrian economics, learn to think about the world. I think that's that's what I'm trying to do, trying to learn about the world and figure out how things work. Can you recommend some website or some place to start? Well, one place to start would be uh, the Mises Institute. Uh, M-I-S-E-S.org. Uh, that is actually the, the world's largest economics website, I think. They have the most materials posted uh, and also the most traffic of all economics-oriented websites in the world. And practically everything on that site is for free. So they have articles and they have commentary, they have videos, they have podcasts, and they have books, and everything is on there. So that's, that's a good place to start.